What do we mean when we speak of nuclear deterrence? Certainly we don't want such weapons for their own sake. We don't desire excessive forces or what some people have called overkill. Basically, it's a matter of others knowing that starting a conflict would be more costly to them than anything they might hope to gain. And yes, it is sadly ironic that in these modern times, it still takes weapons to prevent war. This place is a message and part of a system of messages. Pay attention to it. Sending this message was important to us. We considered ourselves to be a powerful culture. This place is not a place of honor. No highly esteemed deed is commemorated here. Nothing valued is here. What is here was dangerous and repulsive to us. This message is a warning about danger. The danger is in a particular location. It increases towards a center. The center of danger is here, of a particular size and shape, and below us. The danger is still present in your time as it was in ours. The danger is to the body, and it can kill. The form of the danger is an emanation of energy. The danger is unleashed only if you substantially disturb this place physically. This place is best shunned and left uninhabited. Signs is sort of a heavy word, isn't it? It ranges from calls in baseball to calls from gods. It has a physical, platonically ideal manifestation, a la Wiley Coyote, expressing his extreme displeasure. But it also conjures headier images of ideas in general being communicated, being passed on, and importantly, passed down. In this particular case, the conceptualization of the word signs would be the idea of signs itself and the attendant notion of meaning, looking into an infinity mirror and seeing understanding, gazing back, on and on, smaller and smaller, generations of understanding and meaning perfectly replicated for all time. But the big question is, what happens if we break this mirror? What worries me is that America's kind of lost its sense of the future right now. The idea is the future's going to be the collapse of empire, or the rise of the zombies, or something that wipes us all out. Superman's on it forever. Superman, as far as I'm concerned, uh, can save my life. Grim, totalitarian, police state in Britain of the unreachably far future, like 1997. Comic book artists were not happy with Warhol or Hickenstein or any of the pop artists because they said, they're 
our industry. And we got paid page rate. In 1986, almost exactly one year before the debut of the Keith Giffen and the J.M.D. Mateus incarnation of the Justice League, something happened that you've probably heard of. On April 26th, the number four reactor of the Chernobyl nuclear power plant experienced an uncontrolled nuclear reaction as a result of some miscommunications during a safety test. For reasons that will become clear later, the New York Times, in an article titled the chilling silence at Chernobyl, found a way, a week after the tragedy, to insinuate that the accident was wholly the fault of Mikhail Gorbachev, General Secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union at the time. Now, say what you will about the flaws and foibles of the Soviet Union. Lord knows the New York Times did. But the one thing they weren't was the United States, so that's got to count for something. Even prior to the Chernobyl disaster, atomic energy and atomic weapons were on everyone's minds in the Reagan era. No fewer than 20 mainstream, and I must stress that, films were released in the 80s that focused on nuclear war. Just films. Just mainstream. The best and most acclaimed of which was, by uniform, critical concurrence, Superman IV, The Quest for Peace. In fact, that movie is so good that you should probably just believe me and not watch it. Naturally, this cloying cultural ooze was bound to sink into every facet of the media, and it cloyed comics hard. What makes comic books both the reflection and the vanguard of the zeitgeist? That's actually an easy one. They take a month to make. They can respond much more nimbly to cultural currents than any other medium, with only a very few notable exceptions within those other media. Generally speaking, TV shows take a year per season, and movies operate on a two-year schedule. How could we possibly expect them to keep up? So this brings us to the next installment of Justice League. This time, we're looking at the events of Issue 2. Strap in, it's gonna get wild. Issue two opens on a full page close-up of Batman, the Martian Manhunter, and our oh-so-compassionate Dr. Light discussing something I neglected to mention to you all last time, a duplication of an official League transmitter slash communication device given to Dr. Light by a mysterious man who offered her a place in the new Justice League. The last issue shows us all this in a flashback memory Dr. Light has just before she's taken hostage by the 60s radicals. As an aside, I'd like to add here a correction to a statement I made in the previous episode. Apart from Big Barda, Dr. Light, or Dr. Kimio Hoshi, is the only other female character to have her real name mentioned in the first volume. I don't suppose this is a huge improvement, but I want to remain accountable. Dr. Light has light powers, if you couldn't guess, and she blinds the assembly room full of peace activist terrorists near the end of the first issue, which is what allowed Batman to get the drop on the lead rebel with the bomb wired to his heart. Anyway, 
The dialogue on the first page is fine. Actually, it's better than that. It's perfectly serviceable. And I mean that as glowing praise. It establishes the important part of what happened last issue without clunkily rehashing it. And that's pretty much the peak of streamlined serial storytelling. This is probably where I'd force in a recap of last episode for a laugh, but I'll spare you. We're only two episodes in. For our purposes here today, though, the much more interesting part of the first page is the stylization of the title. At the bottom of the page, in rough, bright, dripping letters, are the words, Make War No More. And it's clear that the title is supposed to resemble graffiti. The subtext for this, the sign of this, couldn't be clearer. Despite a generally rising appreciation of graffiti and its larger category of street art, I don't believe it would be too terribly off the mark to suggest that graffiti still looms large in the American consciousness as a symbol of the decay of law and order, with heavy emphasis on the air quotes. Even if it's only a matter of probably now, it was a matter of definitely back in the late 80s. For context of how absurd and vicious the backlash was to graffiti some 30-odd years ago, consider that Ed Koch, then mayor of New York City, actually considered putting wild wolves around the areas he wanted to protect to deter graffiti artists. If you don't believe me, let's hear it in his own words. Put their fingers through where they might climb up and fall in, and the dogs will bite them. I said, if you're still concerned about that, then instead of dogs, put in, put in wolves. This use of graffiti-like typeface in the Justice League, then, sends a clear signal of radicalness and anti-authoritarianness. To put it more bluntly, it signals to the audience that this message of make war no more is not to be taken seriously. Oh, it's certainly a good goal and a utopian ideal, but really... The grown-ups are here to talk policy. To talk realistically. But certainly never to act, God forbid. If you think I'm critiquing this uncharitably, or mining for meaning where there is none, stick with me. I think the comic will speak for itself. On the next page, we're treated to a lovely image of Guy Gardner, the Green Lantern, picking his teeth in the foreground of the top panel, and then an even lovelier moment of him suggesting that he could sexually persuade Dr. Light, who, I have to say, has been nothing but forthcoming, to divulge further information about her mysterious encounter. It's right after that that we're introduced to one of the League's serial side forms. Yellow TV journalist and bombastic pundit Jack Ryder impresses first upon the audience his absolute disdain for this League in a broadcast the Blue Beetle has pulled up on the League's computer. For those of you who know, it won't surprise you that the League eventually meets the Creeper later in the first volume. For those of you who don't know, I guess just ignore that last sentence. With Jack Ryder's latest televised tirade against the League as our L-cut scene transition, we zip to the office of Maxwell Lord. Knowing what we know about Jack Ryder, he's the Creeper, if you hadn't put it together, Maxwell Lord's joke to his personal assistants about Ryder's file being under C, is a coy acknowledgement of pre-crisis DC canon. Had we not known, it would have seemed a very crude joke indeed. In this scene, we'll have our first encounter with Booster Gold. Although he's merely a silhouette in the foreground who doesn't say anything and also nothing happens. C 
Skipping ahead a couple pages, we're treated to a foreshadowing meeting between Dr. Fate and the Gray Man, who turns out to be the only supervillain in the first arc. But don't worry, he'll prove to be no threat in a totally disappointing way. And now, now we come to the real meat of this issue. Nearly 6,000 miles away from the League's current location, sort of a rough estimate based on the most rudimentary of assumptions, we find ourselves in the fictional Middle Eastern country of Bialya. Now, I know what you're thinking. I'm about to rant over the fact that Bialya is almost an anagram of Libya. Well, I'm not going to, because that's not the origin of it. Demetrius claims that it's named after the Jewish bread Bialy, and I believe him. It's exactly the kind of joke he'd make, for better or for worse. It's for work. Our first trip over to Bialya happens to coincide with our introduction to three alien superpowered beings. The Silver Sorceress, a magical heroine of some poorly defined scale and limitation. Wandjina, or perhaps Wandjina, but probably not. A brutish coalescence of Viking and skinhead. And a man in a bluebird suit who can shrink down to seven inches in height named Blue Jay. The real world long and short of it is that these three heroes are all parallels of three Marvel superheroes, the Scarlet Witch, Thor, and Yellowjacket. Marvel made an equivalent exchange with Hyperion, Superman, Nighthawk, Batman, Dr. Spectrum, the Green Lantern, and what I wouldn't give to have Dr. Spectrum in this comic instead of the Green Lantern right now. The Wizard, who is the Ersatz Flash, but I could definitely see that name applying to a piss take of Aquaman. And Power Princess. Take a wild fucking guess on that one. Wonderful. The Fakesies world long and short of it is that these three are the only survivors of a planet that destroyed itself with nuclear war. And they're currently in the middle of a survivor's guilt-fueled crusade across the stars to make sure no other technologically similar civilization makes the same mistake. It's unclear how many Earth countries they've hit prior to our introduction. The three have arrived in Bialya to rid the apparently militaristic country of its nuclear arsenal. And after assuring the Bialyan soldiers that they won't hurt them if they get out of the way, the group proceeds to zap a missile out of existence. To their confusion, they're praised and approached by the opportunistic ruler of the realm, one Ruman Harjavti. There's not really any benefit of the doubt to give to Giffen or Demetrius in this instance. I'm just gonna wait until my neighbor's done. Okay. There's not really any benefit of the doubt to give to Giffen or Demetrius in this instance, because regardless of whether or not they meant to caricaturize Libya's Momar Gaddafi, Ruman Harjavti still reinforces the idea of the wacky Middle East with its zealously America-hating rulers play-acting as military strongmen. Further, once Harjavti welcomes the three to his country, and as he claps Wandjina and the Silver Sorceress on the backs, he bombasts at them that he has built missiles of his own, which is a characterization you would never hear of any president of the United States. And considering that Harjavti probably didn't actually build those missiles himself, it's a dubious and deliberate inclusion in the book. 
Remember how in the last episode I mentioned that imperialism, colonialism, and war were the logical and necessary ends of capitalism? Just checking. The pervasive notion that all of the U.S.'s, or even, quote, the West's, official state bad guys always act with deliberate, malicious intent is the grease on the skids for the American imperial project. It's an idea that must be maintained for the U.S. empire to continue, because for our political and business elite to carry on expanding and plundering, there has to be buy-in from the liberals. And believe me, believe me when I say, they've bought in every time. You'll hear me ranting and raving about the New York Times forever and anon on this podcast, because the New York Times is the single biggest and most influential propaganda arm of the U.S. empire. We're the bad guys, and they're here to convince us we're not. As evidenced by a survey of the Times done by Adam Johnson, writer for The Appeal, contributor to Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, and co-host of the Citations Needed podcast, the New York Times hasn't had a great track record when it comes to war. To quote Johnson's article in Fair, in the past 30 years, from the Persian Gulf, to Bosnia, to Kosovo, to Iraq, to Libya, the New York Times editorial board has never once opposed a U.S. war. The Times' power-serving function was starkly evidenced when, in January 2016, it opposed the U.S. bombing Libya to fight ISIS without congressional approval, only to do a 180 and endorse the war effort the day after President Obama began bombing in August 2016. For further evidence of the Times being an imperial rag, I suggest you read the New York Times. The Tamper Monkey extension for Google Chrome usually has a robust workaround to get behind the paywall. Or pirate the archive or something. Just don't pay for it. With everlasting boogeymen and continuous appeals to the, quote, human rights of the, quote, victims of these, quote, nefarious, quote, authoritarians, the U.S. warmongers can guilt, guile, or even simply persuade prominent liberal leaders and their constituents into supporting an ever-growing, ever-intensifying military machine. Not that it takes much convincing— there are numerous examples of liberal pundits decrying the poor state of the denizens of some pitiable, oppressed country and lamenting that the U.S. has the responsibility to intervene on their behalf because, for some reason, they just can't. Probably in their genes or something. Before any of our listeners who identify as liberal turn this off in disgust, let's investigate just a little bit of the history of liberalism. It might surprise you. Also, I just want to be clear that while I'm definitely ragging on liberals and liberalism right now, conservatives are also monsters. And the key here is that, historically speaking, conservative in the American political sense is also still just liberalism. Although there is an argument to be made that the Republicans have been becoming increasingly illiberal, but we'll set that aside. 
Any hoozle, John Locke, the oft-cited progenitor of the liberal philosophy, was a complete bastard. Apart from writing the oh-so-damaging decree that all men have the right to enjoy life, liberty, and the pursuit of property, sound familiar, he also co-authored the Fundamental Constitutions of Carolina, Article 110 of which legalized the enslavement of human beings in the North American colony. To be fair, he later revised the constitutions, but he kept the slavery parts. You might be interested to learn that he was also an original shareholder in the Royal African Company, which was an English mercantile group that shipped more enslaved Africans across the ocean than any other company in the history of the Atlantic slave trade. Now, I understand that my earlier joke about liberal pundits assuming that oppressed peoples probably just have bad genetics seemed in poor taste. But I'm sorry to say that it has a pedigree. One of the foremost contributors to classical liberalism and the eventual chief examiner of the East India Company, yes, that East India Company, John Stuart Mill, really appreciated some of his father James's ideas. He particularly liked the one about the responsibility of the British to rule over the Indians by dint of, quote, passing them through social childhood to social maturity. So he included in his famous treatise on liberty, yeah, that the principles of liberty are, quote, meant to apply only to human beings in the maturity of their faculties, end quote. To really drive this home, he followed up with, quote, despotism is a legitimate mode of government in dealing with barbarians, provided the end be their improvement and the means justified by actually effecting that end. All this seems counterintuitive to, but in fact stems directly from Mill's notion that hyper-individualism is, quote, one of the leading essentials of well-being, end quote, because Mill regarded any non-European, non-individualistic society as essentially governed by tradition and thus, necessarily, by community. So naturally, we gotta bomb the shit out of them. This free trade of goods and people is a foundational hallmark of liberal capitalism. Let's bring this a little closer to home for our U.S. listeners. As Mill was beginning to formulate and formalize his eventual stances on liberty and such, he was enamored with the spirit of the United States, and in particular, its government. The year was 1830-something, and Andrew Jackson was president. This is important because Andrew Jackson, for those of you who don't know, is arguably the founder of the modern Democratic Party. His urban political machine remains to this day the bedrock of democratic strategy and power. It stands to reason that Mill would be infatuated with the oeuvre of the United States at the time, because Jackson secured his power by doing a bunch of things that Mill would be super cool with. He expanded the rights of white males, slaughtered and displaced masses of Native Americans, quote, for their own good, conceded, quote, reforms to the northern working class that actually empowered the southern plantation owners, which he hid behind a wink and a smile. So let's draw a straight line from Andrew Jackson, who influenced Mill, to Mill, who influenced pretty much everyone after him, 
on through the U.S. Civil War and Reconstruction to the 20th century. The end of Reconstruction in the 1870s resulted in what we now call the Democratic Party, and it dominated the South as the party of the plantation owners, which most definitely still existed and used basically unpaid black labor. With the exception of a brief early 20th century upswing in the popularity of the Socialist Workers' Party, the battle for dominance between the modern Republicans and Democrats was basically unchecked, and it hinged on social factors like race and religion and whether you were born in America or a recent immigrant, rather than economic ones to determine which party you actually voted for. And I wish I could say that that born in America criterion applied to indigenous peoples, but, well, we've always been terrible. Things were violent up to now, but this is where it gets real gory. The Democrats are not the party of peace. They have never been the party of peace. Every single declaration of war in the 20th century was made by a Democratic president. The only person ever to authorize the use of nuclear weapons against other human beings was liberal Democrat Harry Truman. Far from being antithetical to oppression and violence, liberalism is, and always has been, a most vocal proponent. But it's gotten a lot better at obscuring that, particularly to its own constituency. And that's where the New York Times comes in. And, as a product of that, that's where the Justice League comes in. Since it's now the 1980s and the fear of nuclear war is as powerful as it ever was, it would make sense that it would feature heavily in a comic book. And given the apparent liberal bent of the writers, it makes sense that the fear manifests itself the way it does in this comic book. One of the power-serving functions of the liberal media, and I, I mean that in the realistic way, not the foaming Fox News way, because make no mistake, the liberal media is the first line of defense for the status quo, which is the very definition of conservative. Anyway, one of the power-serving functions of the liberal media is to flatten and to blur the power dynamics and the contextual nuances that define what is and is not violence. In Washington Post ease, protests against police murdering black people in their own homes are violent when a Starbucks window is broken, but the police murdering black people in their homes is somehow not. This is all lefty discourse 101, so welcome to the party. To the capitalist establishment property, and specifically capital, it's vital we understand that part, is more important than people. There's nothing new under the sun. In the case of the Justice League, when the heroes catch a news broadcast about the three visitors from space, they're informed by the reporter that several Israeli missile sites were destroyed and that the missiles housed therein simply vanished into thin air. The reporter then editorializes that while the trio claim to be aiding the cause of peace, their methods are anything but peaceful. This strikes me as odd. Because from a rational perspective, 
it sure would seem like a group of folks going around only destroying things that can hurt people would be the apex of peacefulness. Well, they're rotting. It's barbarism come back again. Especially when you consider the apparent equal opportunity dispensation of their services. The League then hops into the Beetle Plane and, en route to Bialia, gives the audience a more detailed accounting of Guy's particular political persuasions. His chauvinistic conviction that the United States alone should have nuclear weapons isn't ever truly challenged by his teammates, and neither it nor the team's reactions to it are truly explored in the book. So we're going to explore it here. Gardner opines that the U.S. should be the only country with nuclear weapons, but he claims first that he wants to see the three alien superheroes take out the nukes of every, quote, two-bit country that has them. So maybe things aren't that simple. For instance, how does Guy feel about Scotland? The UK nuclear weapons program just happens to be there. What about France? They have the third largest nuclear arsenal in the world. The question of France may be giving Guy too much credit, but this was, this was pre-9-11. I probably don't need to ask about India and Pakistan. And while no country should be dismissed as two-bit, you certainly couldn't apply that to those two without some serious ignorance or gymnastics. These are questions that need to be asked, usually, but maybe Guy is philosophically consistent and he really does just want Ronnie on the trigger. What's a little murkier, though, is everyone else's opinions. Sure, we have some internal reactions along the lines of pathetic, infuriating, and jerk. And while these are all correct, these hardly constitute resistance. After the Martian Manhunter finally, albeit, again, non-specifically, tells Guy that he doesn't agree with him, Guy accuses the Martian Manhunter of not understanding Earth politics due to his being a Martian. This is when Batman drops his bomb and asks Gardner if he ever considered that the three alien superheroes might be working with, quote, that terrorist Harjavti. Now, in this simplistic, U.S.-centered world, Ruman Harjavti might very well be a terrorist. But in our world, in the real world, that's a trickier thing to pin on someone. Now, pause this podcast and say what you want about the next person we're going to talk about. Muammar Gaddafi, sometime socialist leader of Libya from 1977 to 2011. Once you're done, please unpause and just believe that I was respectfully nodding along with whatever you were saying. Good? Cool. It can't be overstated that, for a while at least, Gaddafi was demonized in the American press for one reason and one reason alone. He wasn't playing ball with the West, at least not on their terms. Gaddafi is a strange case in the American media because they were seemingly never quite sure what to make of him or what to do with him. But one thing is certain, the government of Libya under Gaddafi had some pretty cool foreign policies that super didn't please the Western powers. 
It materially supported the Black Panther Party, South African anti-apartheid movements, the Irish Republican Army, the totally rad Red Army faction in Germany, and many more. Side note, have you ever noticed that once you hear about something for the first time, you start seeing it everywhere? That's referred to as the Bader-Meinhof phenomenon, and it was named for the first generation of leaders of the Red Army faction. They have absolutely nothing to do with this frequency illusion, but it was the words Bader-Meinhof group that got the public to begin to recognize en masse that they weren't alone in experiencing this strange cognitive artifact. That's it. That's a little non-political side note I have for you. What you most often hear about Gaddafi these days is that he was a divisive figure, with some Libyans supporting his government policies vociferously and others decrying him as a foul devil of a man. This is to be expected, though, since he was the leader of millions of people and everyone has opinions and thoughts that are unique to them because they're human goddamn beings and not any different from us when we criticize our leaders and leadership and our newspapers just infantilize the hell out of them and make us forget that. What happened to Gaddafi? Oh, just the liberals. In 2011, the UN sanctioned a US and NATO-backed, quote, humanitarian intervention. Remember what I said last episode about the United Nations and human rights? That saw the overthrow of the colonel's government. Far from being better for the people of Libya, this move was purely to cement U.S. interest in Africa as a bulwark against growing Chinese influence in the region. Never mind that China is building roads and bridges and infrastructure in Africa, and the U.S. is just destroying it and holding its leaders and people for ransom via the structural adjustment programs of the World Trade Organization. You know how you now owe more on your student loans because of interest than your initial loan was actually worth? Imagine that, but for a whole continent. He will destroy civilization. That's exactly what I intend to do. And also, if you don't pay, the army will bulldoze your dog or something. Liberal intervention indeed. Let's also, for example, look at Iran. Now, I'm no apologist for Iran, but I am critical of the treatment of Iran in the U.S. press. Take, for instance, the constant insistence by The Times, The Post, CNN, Fox, MSNBC, ABC, CBS, and almost all the rest, that we have to live in constant fear of Iran's nuclear weapons program. I can Google Iran nuclear right this second, I know, because I just did, and see a dozen articles from literally just today and probably any given day about, quote, Iran's nuclear weapons program. There's a big problem with this, though. Iran doesn't have a nuclear weapons program. Iran has never had a nuclear weapons program. Iran doesn't want a nuclear weapons program. Iran has had a religious edict against nuclear weapons since 2000 goddamn three. Nuclear weapons run counter to a Quranic decree that states, do not kill a woman, a child, or an aged man. Do not cut down fruitful trees. Do not destroy inhabited areas. Iran has a civilian nuclear program for electricity. You know, 
like the rest of us do. Consider, too, since we're examining the 80s, the Middle East, and the New York Times, that when the Soviets shot down Korean airliner KAL-007 in 1983, the Times condemned the accident as, quote, murder in the air. That was the headline. And it was an accident. The Soviets thought that it was a military plane. And the Reagan administration knew that the Soviets had made that mistake. And the Times knew that Reagan knew this. But when the U.S. shot down Iran Air 655 in 1988, despite it being clearly marked as a civilian aircraft flying in broad daylight and well within its published and approved flight path, the Times hastened to cast the tragedy as a sobering reminder. Hey, we all make mistakes. Oh, and then they also said that it was the Iranians' fault for basically not dodging the missile. And then they lied again about how the Soviets deliberately shot down KAL-007. And then and then they warned about how Iran was rubbing its hands together and scheming about how to use its newfound propaganda advantage. This is, I must remind you, a liberal newspaper. This is the mirror that must be broken. These signs from a media that defends and propagates only the interests of our violent empire have a meaning that must not translate to an understanding, that truly cannot translate to an understanding when subjected to the merest of scrutiny. When we break this mirror, we see behind it, and it's truly horrific what's on the other side. So let's get back to our fake Middle East. Our heroes are finally approaching Bialia, and Guy, having honed in on the alien super trio with his power ring, zips off to fight them, leaving the rest of the team on board the beetle plane. Without hesitation, Batman directs the blue beetle to follow Guy, and they too zoom off into the distance. Naturally, a clash ensues once our two superpowered teams finally meet. Before anything can be satisfactorily resolved, however, the Bialian military shows up to inform the League that they're in violation of Bialian airspace. The League turns back. Cut to the alien trio in Harjavti's office, growing increasingly weary and wary of Harjavti's pompous overtures. And this is where I think we're thrown a curveball. Harjavti going against all the stereotypes of the militant Arabic dictator that I've come to expect from this era's pop culture, mollifies the anti-nuclear zealots by pointing them in the direction of a country with, quote, enough weapons to bomb the planet to oblivion a dozen times over. Russia. I guess that's a twist ending? I didn't see it coming, but it also didn't hook me dramatically at all. What were Giffen and DiMatteis going for there? I mean, Gaddafi was generally cast as a Soviet puppet. And after he stopped being a CIA hitman and started dipping his toes into Arab nationalism, Saddam Hussein was a socialist ally of the Soviet Union. This is a very, very shallow read of that situation, 
but it's the one that would certainly translate to a two-issue arc in the Justice League. Even during the Iran-Iraq War, the U.S. only supported Iraq because they weren't Iran. That alone made the New York Times reporting on it seem actually balanced. I'm just not sure what's being signaled here, what the meaning of this sign is. Is it just the duplicity of the swarthy Arab? Surely it can't be that simple or racist. Was there just no thought put into it at all? Oh well, I'm sure we'll find out next issue. To the listeners of this fine program, I must impart some concerning news. It would seem that one half of the building that our station calls home has burned down. Although we are investigating internally and cannot yet report any conclusions, it is this announcer's opinion that the tragic accident was the result of a bring-your-child-to-work day gone horribly wrong. Now, our little tykes can't be blamed for experimenting with the holiday presents they no doubt were excited to play with. It is the firm belief, both of this station and this announcer, that accelerant in the hands of children is an undeniable benefit to society. And if any blame is to be placed for occurrences such as this, it is to be placed squarely on the shoulders of an education system that fails to instill not only revolutionary verve in today's youth, but also the necessary recognition of individual action weighed against community good. For our local listeners, we will be holding a council meeting under the Parenti statue in the park next Tuesday evening to discuss this issue. For our more geographically diverse audience, you can weigh in on Instagram at Collective Action Comics Podcast, on Twitter at Call Comics, C-O-L-C-O-M-I-X, or you can email the station at CollectiveActionComics at gmail.com. We thank you for your participation. And as always, we hope you'll join us in two weeks for the next thrilling installment of Collective, Collective Action, Action Comics. Comics.